Jen? Sally. Hey, I just found out you're in Aries. Listen, if you have Virgo rising, give me a call. Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we explore the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. <laughs> I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. Uh, I selected our episode for this one. It's actually been a while since we last did a regular recording. Yeah. So I have no idea what our pattern was before that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, just in discussing our scheduling, I kind of had a hankering. So I proposed this episode uh, back in season two, episode 19, the Italian bird fiasco. Mm -hmm. How did how did you find this episode, Epi? I enjoyed it. I uh, have just picked up and read the first chapter, so I'm an expert now, (laughs) of the book The Big Con. Right. Uh, Yeah, which was recommended, I think, by a fan of the show. I think by a a patron or or a patron via Twitter. I forget exactly. Yeah. Uh, This is by David Maurer, I think, M-A-U-R-E-R, who is a linguist. And it is from the 40s, and it's where he talks to a bunch of uh, con artists and to learn their lingo. But it's basically uh, kind of a definitive text on how con games worked back then. Mm-hmm. And the book that like tells us how con games work in the fiction that we watch, right? Like it's the... Um, uh, it's the Ur text there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a good read so far. Like I said, I've only read one chapter of it, uh, so I don't. I'm, I'm not quite prepared for this, but I'm already seeing some parallels uh, within this this episode and uh, uh, what's in that book. And I'll bring that up as we go along. But that was exciting. I was very happy to be like, oh, okay, let's put this to use. I had a hankering for a more con focused episode. Uh, we've had some more character driven ones recently. Um, and so this, uh, as I was scrolling through options, uh, this pinged my memory as one that was a little more about, um, you know, some kind of uh, uh, trickery. It turns out there's not really a con game in this one so much. No. Uh, it's more just a mystery, but it certainly has con artists. I I thought for a while there they were trying to get something out of Jim, which yeah. I, like that's that's like getting blood from a stone. <laughs> <laughs> You deserve what you get when you try that, but um, they're just—he's more of a patsy than uh, than a mark, right? Like he's—he's—they're not trying to get money from him. They're just trying to use him as insulation from consequences. Yes, I agree. Uh, And so a lot of the so the the journey of the episode is kind of uh, this is very much a we know what Jim knows episode. So we're with him as he tries to figure out. What right. the, you know, as strange things happen and he tries to put the pieces together to figure out what's really going on. So it's actually, uh, and I think for the first time in a long while, a Jim takes a job episode. Right. Because <laughs> uh, it does get launched by him being employed to do a thing. And a little bit of a spoiler here. He takes a job that he gets paid for. It's wild. It's the second <laughs> season. They haven't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they're willing to cut him a break still on yeah. some of this. Um but there is, but it still does have the the uh, the iconic uh, reversal of fortune um, at the end. So right, yeah, that's good. Um, so this one is uh, directed by Jackie Cooper, 
um, who we have seen before on the show and behind the camera. Um, always, always fun to see that name involved. Uh, and it is written by Edward J. Lasco, who wrote a number of season two episodes in particular, but this is actually the first one of those that we are doing. Mm-hmm. I think this has, and that might account a little bit for the, not that it has a standard plot or anything like that, but kind of for the way in which it is a mystery story that starts with the, our detective hired to do a job and right. doesn't really have side character. Like Dennis is involved, but mostly because the police are involved. And so, of course, we're going to get Dennis. Yeah. Um, we don't have Angel. We don't have Rocky. Uh, it is one of our more straightforward, stylistically, um, stories. If you pitch the story, or sorry, if you pitch the Rockford Files, you would say, you know, it's a noir set today, mm-hmm. and today being the 1970s. Uh, and this show, this episode is precisely that pitch, mm-hmm. right? In fact, I, it's been just under a thousand years since I've seen the Maltese Falcon. Right. <laughs> but I, like, so, oh God, I should have, I should have freshened up on this because I am convinced that the title's a reference to it and, and that there's, I think it, you know, it, it is a bit of a, not tongue in cheek, but a bit of a wink to, yeah, yeah Maltese Falcon in particular. Um, yeah. Kind of, kind of thing. Though, uh, well, maybe we'll get into it. I mean, more, I say more of a wink because it doesn't really, I don't think it really has anything to do with that story other than there's bird sculptures involved. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so Edward J. Lasco, uh, wrote a ton, what seemed to be, uh, pretty heavily involved with Charlie's Angels. He, uh, wrote 32 episodes. Um, among other things, Mannix, uh, Mission Impossible. So. Oh, yeah. And a couple episodes of Airwolf, which I know you yeah. harbor tender, uh, <laughs> tender feelings for it's a show about a helicopter i mean come on <laughs> so that portfolio does seem to support the kind of like kind of my feeling of like here's a story that works for this show but it's not a let's really dig in and get like mm-hmm. all of the rockford miss out of this if that makes sense but it's good that's not a denigration um just yeah. kind of looking at the portfolio anyway uh we should get into it Oh, we're going to get into it. Should I start with this opening montage? You should. It's a short one. <laughs> it's a short one, yeah. Um, okay, so here, here are my bullet points from the opening montage. The voice of Kit is back. <laughs> uh, and I think we, we just briefly discussed this. This is probably not back, but he will return yes. uh, to play the prosecutor in uh, So Help Me God. And, but because we're watching this out of order... And because that episode looms so large in our brains, we're already predisposed to not liking him. Sure. Also, his accent predisposes us to not liking him. All the signals that we get about this character are telling us not to buy into what he's selling. Yes. For sure. Uh, I wrote down $11,000. I forget what that was. I think that was what they're priced at. Uh, I think we'll get into that later. That was the bid that Jim ended up making. That's what it was. Yes. Uh, and so by our rule of thumb, that's $55,000. It's not bad. Um, the, the line that's blackmail. No, no, it's business. It's good. I'm looking forward to that moment. And then the final one, uh, the moment of action where the man falls and I'm like, Oh, something's going to happen. And 
Now let's go to the episode and we're going to find out just how swiftly that occurs. (laughs) Hello, listeners. We really appreciate you being here. And we want to make sure that you know that you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash 200 a day. In addition to episode previews and access to the 200 a day Rockford Files file spreadsheet, our patrons get plus expenses, a bonus podcast where we talk about movies we're watching, books we're reading, and games we're playing. 200 a day will remain free to all for as long as we do it. But if you want to help support us and get access to the new Plus Expenses audio feed, you can become a patron for just $1 an episode. Each episode, we extend a special thanks to our gumshoe-level patrons. This time, we say thank you to Jim Crocker. In addition to supporting the show, he also sells our games at conventions east of the Mississippi. See where to find him at Jim Likes Games on Twitter. Shane Liebling, if you play games online, you know you should check out his free dice rolling app, Roll for Your Party, at rollforyour.party. Kevin Lovecraft. Hear him on the RPG Actual Play podcast, the Wednesday Evening Podcast All-Stars, over at misdirectedmark.com. Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Dave P., Dale Church, and Jay Aiden. And finally, big thanks to Victor DeSanto and our detective patrons. Check them out on Twitter. Eric Antenor, at Antenor, Brian Pereira, at Thermoware, Bill Anderson, at BillAnd88, and of course, Richard Haddam, at Richard Haddam. We follow them, too, at 200pod. Help out the show by leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend who you think would like it. And check out patreon.com slash 200 a day to see if becoming a patron is right for you. That's kind of a, a, a little unique thing where it gives us the big moment of action at the end of the montage. And yeah. then we actually are going to see that in the first scene. Yeah, the very first. And it's, this is one of the very few scenes that aren't, as you said, like Rockford focused, right? Like... This is one of the few times where we see things happening not from Rockford's point of view. Oh, right. Yeah. But we start in London. We start in London. Yes. Heathrow Airport. So, yeah, we uh, start off following a nervous looking guy in a pinstripe suit uh, who's Mr. Barrows in a, in a moment that is straight from, oh, right, this is how this used to work. He is walking up to a ticket counter to yes. purchase a round-trip flight to Los Angeles. So I, I just want to take a look at this. Have you? Did you look into the overall exchange rate here? Because the ticket counter guy yeah. says that it'll be 663 pounds. I, I made a note of it, and then I, my note was 663 pounds. Is that the weight of his luggage? <laughs> what, what? I think I found uh, the historical exchange rate. We're looking at 1976, right? 1970s, early 1976. I mean, the episode aired in, in January. So, you know, let's assume for the sake of argument, 1976. Uh, yeah. It looks like it was around uh, daily breakdown effective exchange rate, 1976. Okay. It was about, so in January, it actually dropped quite a lot later in the year. But early in the year, it was just over one pound to two dollars. It was like two dollars to two cents, two dollars, three cents. All right. So this is 15. Oh, oh this is two dollars to every pound. Sorry, I got that wrong. Oh, my God. This is an expensive trip. This is six thousand dollars trip. All right. It is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is funny how of all the things over time, international travel has actually gotten cheaper. Yes. Which is wild. Anyway. So there's a lot of money in this episode, but that jumped out to me. I was like, oh, we should we should figure that out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm imagining that's first class, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
he's worried about not to spoil anything. I don't know why I worry about spoiling things for our listeners. <laughs> he's he's stands to make some money, probably because of the cons that they run. He's used to going first class, and he also, as we'll see in just a moment, is very eager to keep his luggage with him. And he also, as we find out, is a is an agent or you know employed by the Lloyd's of London insurance agency. So yeah. one imagines that, yeah, that's pretty uh, uh, hoity-toity in terms of money you're throwing around. Um, but we'll get to that later. Uh, but yes, as you say, he wants to keep his bag with him. But unfortunately, it's over the size limit. And so he has to check his bag uh, with the uh, ticket agent, apparently. I think uh, it is it is telegraphed to, the, to us that he is reluctant to do this, but he does not protest. And... As his bag vanishes, uh, he makes he goes over to a phone booth and makes an overseas phone call to Thomas Kane in Los Angeles. Says that it's on its way, and then through the phone booth, he sees two two guys who are clearly goons. This is just a classic thing in the phone booth, in the middle of the conversation, seeing the goons and like having to run without finishing the conversation. Right? Yeah, no, this is good stuff. We see this all the time. Um, and works every time. <laughs> but he does say that it's on its way, and he drops the phone, tries to flee the airport, and we have a brief, slow-moving action scene where he uh, tries to go out some side door and is trapped in a little outdoor area by a fence and climbs up to the roof. This is another thing about air travel back then. You could just go out of emergency doors. Yeah, you could just run out on the tarmac. Just don't, just don't run in front of a plane. You're good. It's all good. He is pursued across the roof by the larger goon, uh, goon, goon Prime, who wears a tan coat. Uh, we see he does most of the action in this episode. There's also, you know, Goon, Goon, what would be after Prime? Goon Second? <laughs> yeah. Uh, secondus? I think it might actually be se- like Secondus or something like that. Well, technically it would be Goon would be the normal goon, and then Goon Prime would be the secondary right. goon. <laughs> yes, the next order of goon. All right, sounds good. <laughs> yeah. So Goon is wearing our uh, the tan is larger and wears the tan jacket. Goon Prime is smaller and wears the dark jacket. We're approaching a uh, universal theorem of Goon. <laughs> Finally, um, but anyway, Goon uh, uh, chases him across this rooftop, and then Barrows, unwilling to come into the grips of said Goon, decides <laughs> to try and climb over the edge of the roof onto like a fire escape or something. And then we get the shot from below. From the preview montage of him falling off the roof. Yeah. But it does not stop there. We cut from that to a creepy shot, low angle shot from behind him as he's lying on the ground. We see that he's breathing and we hear his breath. Yes. Like, oh God. So he's still alive after that fall. And uh, our, our goon comes up to him and very patiently explains, uh, if you want a doctor, tell me where you shipped the box. Okay, so this is good stuff. This sets, like, all the drama, and we'll get to the cut in a moment here. But I just want to point out the how suspiciously this goon approaches this body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he just goes out of his way to, to let anyone who happens to be watching know that he's stalking up onto a possible <laughs> dead body. Like, it's not like... like- no touch, no no touchy, like yeah. He's just like <laughs> looking both ways and just kind of creeping up to it. Instead of like, I don't want to critique the goon on his technique. He's an okay goon. 
I, I you know, but if I were this goon, I would run up to the body and be shouting, oh, are you all right? Are you all right? And then when I get up to him, whisper what I have to whisper. <laughs> so that if anybody happened to be watching, then they'd be like, oh, he's going to help him out. Well, as you are currently wearing a more tan coat uh, than I am, I'm going to defer to your expertise <laughs> on the goon scale. Mr. Burroughs manages to whisper out the uh, a couple names. Uh, Campbell... Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote down Campbell Gary's. I don't know if those were two different things or it doesn't matter. Yeah. He, he says a name that we later, uh, it turns out will be one, a, a gallery from this very dramatic scene. We cut to, Oh, Jim, <laughs> poor Jim with a full bachelor chores day <laughs> where he's both trying to pull together his laundry and take out his bags of garbage at the same time. I was trying to figure this out because. But yeah, I remember. I remember when I only did housework once every couple of years. And so <laughs> I thought maybe I'd get it all done in a half hour and just tried. But yeah, it, it is uh, a comedy. In a, in a dramatization of the principle that multitasking is inefficient. Right. Uh, he, he is unable to carry his laundry and the garbage and answer the phone at the same time. Yes. <laughs> so as the phone starts ringing and he starts shouting at it, so we know he's not in a good mood. He drops everything and then turns around, smacks his head into the open cabinet over him <laughs> that he never got a chance to close because his arms were full. And then uh, answers the wall phone in his kitchen that I can't remember is is ever right. there before or since. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. I appreciate it. Uh, I mean, if you have two rooms, you should have a phone in each room. Yeah, a good 10 feet away from the other phone. Sometimes you have to talk on the phone while you're cooking. Yeah, I'm with you. Well, now I just I'm going to be keeping an eye out in other other, yeah, other episodes to see if there's still a as as we know, you know, Jim has the eternally shifting yeah interior space because it just wasn't the same every time. On the phone is uh, as you say the voice of Kit, um, <laughs> but this is uh, Thomas Kane calling Jim. Um, he was referred to him by Mister Coleman. Jim is not predisposed to appreciate that reference as Coleman never paid him his final invoice. Yes. <laughs> so he's going to have to demand half of his $200 in advance uh, due to that recommendation. But uh, Kane agrees and tells him to and, and wants to see him at his uh, hotel, the the Delman, and uh, they set up the appointment. So we keep saying the voice of Kit. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Thomas Kane is played by William Daniels. Uh, this is... His first appearance, we already did the other episode that he was in, so help me God, um, which is great. One of our faves. Uh, yeah. It is our episode 32, and we had uh, Jess Banks on with us to mm-hmm. go over that one, which was a treat. So we talked about uh, uh, William Daniels a little bit in that episode. But uh, yeah, also Mr. Feeney in Boy Meets World, <laughs> uh, among many other uh, TV and, and some movie roles, so... Um, seeing a young, sharp, serious William Daniels is pretty, pretty sweet. He's, uh, in this, he's, he describes himself as an operator eventually. And it's like, yes, that is what this character is. Like, he's not particularly menacing, but he does no. have all the confidence in the world. Uh, right. Which is, and you always get the sense that he's playing some kind of angle, which I think Jim picks up on immediately as well. Uh, but yeah, it's great. Yeah. 
we see this in this episode and the other episode and of course in kit in his voice work in night rider <laughs> he does a great job of holding ground where you feel you're just beneath him yeah and as we see in the scene and all the scenes between him and jim i, I really enjoy how this immediately chafes yes jim and like uh but it doesn't the, jim can't get get over on it right like he can't even though we're with jim and we're on jim's side he still feels uh, more uh authoritative and more refined and more in his element than jim does and we will definitely see that in this scene um we have the credits playing as jim pulls up to this motel uh rings the bell at number 12 where he's staying it is a very well appointed uh yes uh hotel room or motel room uh as it is uh i get the feeling that this is just yeah some places were like this at the time yeah there's a there's a door directly outside onto the courtyard and it has a curtain behind it and so when you draw the curtain and open the door and you just walk into this giant room full of furniture and like just paintings and, yeah yeah all this stuff I, i'm like I, like i mentioned at the top of the top of our show uh i've been reading the big con and uh i guess the fundamental thing about cons is that they they operate out of what are called big shops which are just stages that they set up mm -hmm. uh like fake establishments for me i like because i'm reading this book and I probably saw this episode long ago. And, uh, but like, I'm like, oh, this is a con. Like my notes say, <laughs> Jim's about to get conned or is going to realize he's, he's being conned because it, it's, it's so out there. Like everything is out in the open to just show Jim how wealthy this guy is. It's not like art is literally sitting on a chair. There's like, uh, I mean, he's supposed to be an art dealer as well, but like, it's just meant to be like, look at me. I have money. You can trust me in matters of money. Right. And as Jim comes in, Kane is on the phone, of course, with Paolo somewhere in Italy or whatever, uh, establishing, you know, more of his position in this art world. Uh, and their first interaction is this whole, this whole establishment of dominance, right? Uh, Kane is talking about the weather in, Italy and France, <laughs> yes. and Jim comes back with what I refer to as uh, grumpy California localisms. <laughs> it's 85 degrees in Florence. Doesn't often get that hot in northern Italy this time of year. I don't like Florence when it gets that hot. Ah, but that's life. Well, we had a hot April here last year. I, uh... I had a friend who said it got up to 85 degrees in the city of industry, but I don't believe him. I mean, it always just seems hotter in those little towns next to the freeway. You know, undercutting the, the grandiosity of what Kane is trying to establish. The, the line of, it just seems hotter in those little towns near the speedway. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know what's going on in Florence. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's real good. Uh, but they do... Get down to business. Uh, Kane wants Jim to act as a purchasing agent for him at an art auction. He goes off onto a tangent, uh, and the details don't really matter, but he goes off onto a tangent, uh, cause I think Jim picks up like a sculpture or something. And, yes. And Kane goes off about like, oh, that's an example of this artist's African period. And 
people like and he only made 18 of these some people think he made 24 but i knew him and he only worked this many months on it and uh maybe 19 at the most all so he's both kind of lording this like oh i'm an insider right status but in a very good example of the the show not wasting any of its own material this will come up later it's funny because i kept while watching this i kept expecting this to be a lead up to that joke where he says and it's worth this amount of money and jim goes oh and you know sets (laughs) it down before breaking it or something like that but there's no need for that joke this scene has a whole other purpose. And the whole time I kept thinking that that was its purpose. Uh, yeah. Anyways, that's just me. At, at no point was I like, this is filler. Right. Yeah. Oh, he's talking about all the stuff. There's all these weird little details and names and stuff. And I'm kind of like, uh, I hope I don't need to know all these names because I'm not really, they're just going by. <laughs> but I know there's something here that's you know going to come Something's back. Happened. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he gets around to the point. Uh, there's a cormorant which is a kind of bird. So this bird sculpture, the Italian bird, if you will, from the title, uh, that's going to be on auction at the, the Campbell Gallery. There's a lot of exposition in these first couple scenes. So all this stuff is going to revolve around the set of three bird sculptures. The originals were by this famous, or this this wonderful sculptor, Lambrini. They were lost in a fire, and then his son made replicas. And so mm-hmm. as to the art world at large, the originals are lost. The replicas are very nice, but not as good as the originals. And as far as anyone knows, one of the Lambrini duplicates is going up for bid. But Kane thinks there's a chance that it might actually be an original. So he wants Jim to go bid on it. If he goes and bids on it because he's a known quantity in the art world, that'll drive up the bidding just right. by the fact that he's interested in it. Um, so that's why he needs an intermediary. He has someone he usually uses, but Terry Fielder isn't in town right now. He's in Prague for the month, so he's going with Jim instead. Uh, Jim already established his, uh, you know, his rate two hundred a day. Kane will pay him his day rate for this hour and a half of work. Um, Jim has two conditions: he needs he's, he wants a hundred dollars in advance, and he wants to know where he can find Coleman. <laughs> Coleman is also in Europe. Specifically in Prague as well? Oh, yeah. Maybe Terry was somewhere else. And No, no. I think, like... Was everyone in Prague? Everyone was in Prague. I think that was, like, an ongoing joke in the episode, is that every time they wanted to say someone was somewhere, they were like, oh, they're in Prague. He can't get to Coleman, but he'll take his $100 in advance, and we have a great little character setting on the back end where Kane says, ciao, and Jim says, adios. Yes. <laughs> there's a there's a great moment in this when uh Kane asks him if he has a card. Mm. I'm like, well yeah, I mean, what job do you want him to have? <laughs> but instead it's this it, it's it's more of the class stuff. It's more of the like, oh I'm fresh out. Like, why would I have a card? I'm just so busy I never have a chance to get more printed up. I'm wondering if this is a if this is before it's established that he prints them out of his own car, I don't think so. I think we've I think we've known that if we've been okay. watching the show. I think that's a deliberate choice for Jim to say, like, I'm not giving like, yeah, I don't need to give you a card. <laughs> so we uh, cut to the auctioneer describing the uh, the cormorants and giving that explanation about the originals destroyed in fire, et cetera, et cetera. So the minimum bid for this Lambrini duplicate is. 
$5,000, and the bidding begins. This is a bit of a gag uh, sequence here where Jim starts, like, he he bids, Mm -hmm. and then other people are bidding by doing little motions and then Jim's like, oh, is that how you're supposed to do this? And does a little motion. Gets ignored. <laughs> and then crosses his legs in irritation, and that's the motion that... <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's good physical comedy. I, as a kid, I had a fear of going to auctions because of things like this. Because I was like, what if I sneeze? <laughs> then do I owe them money? Like, how does this even work? Yeah, I have never been to uh, an auction a live auction, so yeah, I don't know how. Uh, I assume they're all s- social nightmares. Yeah, like that's <laughs> seems terrible and terrifying. Filled with unwritten rules that I will violate over and over again uh, and be ostracized. That is, uh, that's just my assumption. Right. Well, that's why we stick to podcasts. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the end, Jim starts getting uh, bit up, essentially, by a lovely woman who's sitting at the end of his row. Mm-hmm. Um, but she ends up uh, not not going the distance, and Jim uh, wins the Lambrini duplicate with an $11,000 bid. And so Kane had given him a blank check and told him, you know, bid up to $12,000. If, if it goes for more than that, don't bother. This isn't a situation where he needs to get reimbursed or something weird like that. Like, yeah, they're pretty clear about like he's using other another you know Kane's money for this. She uh, so this woman chases him down after afterwards. She just wants to take a look at the uh, at the cormorant. Um, she introduces herself as Evelyn Stoneman. We see Jim, I think, almost just by default, <laughs> thinking on his feet to kind of keep up his a cover story of some kind just out of like professionalism. Right. I have questions about this scene because I also, Oh, all right. This might be one for the listeners here. So Jim in the previous scene uh, is a little out of his element. That was Mm -hmm. what all the comedy was about. Like he, he, he's not used to these auctions, but part of what he does to get attempt to get into his element is to mimic her actions, Mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of a flirty thing. And then she comes out to talk to him. And I, like, I can't tell if he's flustered at one point or if he's flirting or if he's just trying to hide the fact that he's a private eye working for someone else. Like, and I'm not saying this as a bad thing. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's, it's horrible that the show isn't telling me this. I, I'm saying that like all of these possibilities exist in this moment here. Yeah. And I, I find that kind of interesting. And like this payoff where the payoff from the conversation before where he starts leaning on what he just learned right. is part of a standard TV comedic formula for someone getting into a relationship on like false knowledge. Oh, right. Like, sure. and, mm-hmm. and I thought maybe they were going that route, but uh, refreshingly they do not. <laughs> yeah. I kind of read it as, he, as a professional, he kind of has a responsibility not to right. throw his client under the bus, right? Yeah. And his and and Kane did say this is just between you know like I want to keep this on the down low. Other people shouldn't know that I'm involved. So he is being a professional when he's obfuscating why he's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out that so the the uh, Evelyn uh, Jim mentions. 
Terry Fielder and everyone knows who that is and knows that he's in Prague. So <laughs> it's like, okay, so he's in a world where all these people know each other. Right. Um, ask Jim about his area of study. And then that's when he, you know, it starts regurgitating all those details about this, this artist and his African period. She asks what theory he subscribes to. And he says the same things that Kane had said, like 18, 19 at the most. And you see her face just getting more and more like, upset and upset or just kind of like disconcerted which theory do you support well uh, I think 18 uh, 19 at the most uh, I think 24 is just out of the question well, you see I know how slowly he worked and uh, I just don't think he could have ever done 24 However, uh, if he worked late and, uh, you know, worked like a little beaver, he might have turned out uh, 20, 21. Who knows? Uh, he might even have done 24. Could I have him a bird back, please? I've written five papers supporting the 24 theory. But, of course, you knew that. Of course, of course. I, I was just fooling. <laughs> but she... Uh finally gets to to her real interest here, which is that she works for England's National Gallery. She happened to be in Canada. They heard about this auction. This bird is part of some collection that's not supposed to be broken up. And so they sent her down here to try and get it, but they only had authorized so much money. Right. She's sure she can get um, $15,000 to pay for it to get it back to the National Gallery. And that's when Jim's like, well, I'm working for someone else. It's not up to me. Mm-hmm. She asks him who. He says that he's not at liberty to say, but he takes her card. He will ask. Uh, and they can get in touch from that end. So it ends on a pretty professional level. Oh, wow. Then we, uh, then, then our mystery starts to, uh, st- starts to generate. Yes. <laughs> Jim leaves the auction house. Uh, he has a little crate. So it's this like little wooden crate that the bird is packed in says fragile on the side, which is funny. Uh, and then we see the two goons that we first saw at the uh, at Heathrow are following him. There's this lovely orchestral violin theme in the underscoring during this scene. I wrote that down too. I was like, I like this. What's going on? Here's our here, here's our nod towards like the art world. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we'll add a violin. Um, <laughs> it's good. Uh, Jim puts the crate on the roof of the Firebird while he gets out his keys, and then the he is assaulted, punched in the stomach by by Goon, while Goon Prime grabs for the crate. Um, Jim uh, takes some swings and ends up pushing uh, Goon Prime's arm, and the cormorant falls on the ground and gets smashed. Yes. Dun-dun-dun. Uh, there's a security guard at the gallery door who runs over... Um, and the two goons, uh, beat it. Uh, they don't want to deal with, with, uh, with the security. Um, and, uh, Evelyn also sees this happen. So Jim's getting his breath back. Uh, the, the, the sculpture is all shattered on the pavement. Um, she comes up and starts, uh, chiding him for letting it get smashed. Why, yeah. Why, why did she just let him take it? Better for them to have it than to break it. Uh, he doesn't let anyone touch it and tells the security guys, uh, I'm going to need a statement from you for my bonding company. 
the the Bond company was brought up in the preview montage. This is also foreshadowing a little bit. Evelyn uh, asks him why he has a bonding company and then mentions a second statue or something. Basically asks him some question. He answers, revealing his ignorance of the fact that there's more than one of these statues. Right. Who who are you really? You're clearly not an art dealer. Um, and Jim, for a second, I thought he's just going to be like, all right, here's the deal. But he just makes some defensive snarky remarks as he uh, packs the shards of the bird into a crumpled paper bag that he took out of the trunk of the Firebird. Uh, we go back to the Delman Motel uh, and see that Evelyn has followed Jim. And there's actually a little line of dialogue where he's like, if this wasn't so close to the auction house, you never would have been able to follow me, <laughs> which I appreciated. Yeah, he's so from the get go in this episode. He's out of sorts, right? Like everything from him carrying his dirty laundry and trying to take the trash out <laughs> to uh, dealing with the art world and dealing with uh, Thomas Kane. He just feels like he's been off kilter this whole time. And uh, this moment feels petulant yeah. in a very frustrating way. And I love it. I, it's just like, well, you never would have been able to do this if, if I wasn't having such a bad day. He rings at number 12. Uh, nothing happens. And then the manager of the hotel comes up and asks if he can help them. Jim says he's just here to, to uh, see Mr. Kane. But dun, dun, dun. There's no one staying in this suite. No one's been here for days. Yeah. Uh, when he says Thomas Kane, Evelyn is like, you're working for him? There's a There's a bit of an interesting... Looking back at the episode, once you see how it all plays out, but at this point, this all seems pretty legit, right? Yeah, like her reactions it, seem on point for what is happening. I was going to ask you about that because, um, as often happens on our podcast, a truth is revealed at the end of the episode or near the end of the episode of the show, and then when we revisit the show for the podcast, I start thinking about the scenes in the light of that truth, right? right. And that's what's happening with her. There's a certain dedication to her act mm-hmm. <laughs> that is maybe above and beyond. This moment isn't. Yeah. Uh, the moment in the um, parking lot where she says, why didn't you just let them take it is is great because there's a there's a art world reason for why she would want that. And there is a real reason for why she would want right. that. And that is great. And she's also seen the result of it being broken. Yeah. And so she, yeah. and Yeah. But the there's the, I have written five papers supporting the 24 theory. I'm like, that's either really dedicated to her craft uh, to be upset about that rather than try to mimic whatever he was saying. Right. And agree with his theory. Uh, to, to maybe ingratiate herself with him. I think in that moment, it's more about the audience seeing that interaction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, and there's also an aspect of, so, you know, spoilers. There is an Evelyn Stoneman who does work for the National Gallery. Right. So she may have actually written these papers. So it just depends on how into that role she mm-hmm. is. Dun, dun. Uh, the the manager lets him poke his head in, and it is. I, I expected it to be like the full, like completely cleaned out blank room, 
it's a fancy motel room, so it like has the furniture and everything, and yeah, and the bar and the glasses. Uh, but all the art is gone, and uh, there's been no no one's been there. And the manager even says that there's been no calls from that suite through the switchboard. When Jim's like, he called me from this room, and that was all all a setup. So okay, let's talk about this manager for just a moment. <laughs> this is a, this is, again. This is a big chop from that book, The Big Con. Like, it's clear that this was a was set up just like in the movie The Sting, right. <laughs> you know, to to create an illusion of something for Jim to, to swallow. Uh, and I love that it just falls apart here. And that doesn't change Jim's relationship with Thomas Kane in the slightest. We'll talk about that <laughs> when we get to it. That's true. But this manager is super convenient yeah <laughs> a whole lot of personal knowledge about what's been going on in this particular room mostly if it's like oh we didn't have anyone in that room that makes sense especially if it's a suite that's super expensive he would know if that was filled up or whatever but there's no calls from the switchboard <laughs> off the top of his head like i just checked is your 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 head cannon is that he's part of the con i that was what i was thinking at that time right like that was the the thing like why isn't Jim suspicious of this dude? But anyways, that was, yeah, that's where I was in my, in my head at that moment. He can't just walk into a hotel room, set it up and then walk out without having an inside man. Sure. Yeah. That's and true. Wh why not this manager? Right. Like, I feel like, it, yeah, we're kind of getting into the level of probably thinking about this more than the episode thinks about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. <laughs> like he's here so that Jim can be told that there was no one in this yeah. suite. <laughs> maybe we'll circle back to this in a minute because now i have a question but anyway uh, uh <laughs> the outcome of this is uh you know evelyn knows that he's working for thomas kane tells him that he's he's known in the art world as a uh unethical collector everything he does is technically legal but it's often you know right. inappropriate unethical his eleven thousand dollar check for the to the auction house did clear so that was legit and past that you know that's all he knows. Uh, she does ask Jim to call her if he finds out where the other cormorants are. Um, as she still wants to recover them, he has her card. Um, so Jim, Jim, Jim has lots of friends, uh, especially in these early seasons, right? Yeah. <laughs> so Jim goes to see his friend who, uh, works in a gallery, uh, and has some kind of relationship with the museum, uh, Ted Heller who is played by a very young uh, Ron Silver, who yeah. I immediately notice when he's in things because he has such a particular method of delivery, like a very particular cadence. I mostly know him as uh, Bruno from West Wing, the political strategist who comes on to uh, at the, towards the end of, of West Wing to uh, try and get uh, 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 Jimmy Smith's elected. I know him as Ron Silver, actor and NASA assassin from <laughs> Heat Vision and Jack, the single episode of a television show pilot uh, starring Jack Black as an astronaut <laughs> who flew too close to the sun. And now when the sun is out, his brain expands and he gets smarter. And his roommate, played by Owen Wilson, who was turned into a motorcycle, <laughs> and that's who he rides around. Wow. Uh, so get on YouTube. Check that out. Ron Silver plays himself 
actor and NASA assassin, Ron Silver. But I'd also like to point out, and this is more pertinent to what we're doing here, that at this moment, this is the most Carl Sagan person. <laughs> oh my God, with the haircut? Yeah, the haircut, the turtleneck, the whole outfit. I was like, holy. So anyways, I, I have a deep and abiding love for this character from the moment we see him because he's both Ron Silver and Carl Sagan. Right, and I wish he was in more episodes. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> only appearance for this character or this actor in the Rockford Files, but oh, so good. He's, you know, buddies with Jim. Um, again, uh, so this art world is very small. Everyone knows everyone. So he knows uh, Evelyn Stoneman and Thomas Kane. He mm-hmm. says that she's very dedicated and passionate about uh, you know, her job, um, and that he's a fast buck artist. Um, he, uh, gives us a little more about the difference between the originals and the duplicates. The duplicates are worth five to $10,000 on the open market, while the originals, which were lost in the fire, are priceless. So, I mean, like, the duplicates are still worth, oh, right? Like, yeah, that's five times as... Tw- Twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars that Rockford dropped in that parking lot, uh, and so he's brought the shards uh, because he wants Ted to use his fancy electro dating process. Yes, <laughs> to check these out. Um, so he, he he needs more information. So he was like, "Look, there's originals, there's duplicates. I just want to, you know, let's see what the deal is." Yeah. Um, but it'll take some time because I have to go into the machine. Uh, so he leaves them with Ted while he goes to try and find Kane and get some answers. Um, thankfully, it is not a long journey, as when Jim gets home, we have a, a shot from inside the trailer where we see him come in his door, and in the foreground are a pair of wingtips up on his uh, <laughs> up on his desk. <laughs> which is uh. a pretty one, which I feel like I have not seen. I feel like this is the only time I've seen that in the Rockford Files. Yeah, and it would have been such a good mob boss play. Mm-hmm. What's What's really interesting about this character is that he carries all the confidence of a mob boss, but none of the threat. Yeah. Yeah, it's I love it. Yeah, this is kind of a low-tension episode in the sense that there's never a sense of physical danger for... I mean, there's a guy who falls off the roof, and that's bad, right. but that like just kind of happens. Um, and then with Rockford in particular, sure, he gets beat up a little bit, but... There's never a sense that he's under physical threat. No one's going right. to drive him out into the desert, right? Um, it's all this social social pressure and livelihood pressure, as we get to. As this detail, and I'm like, I'm equally willing to believe that this is totally legit or complete, like a complete uh, uh, fib, uh, that Kane is adept with pass keys. Uh, he was one of the few Americans assigned to British intelligence during the war. <laughs> I wrote that down too. It's great. And again, like we're talking about a guy who probably is just a con man and you know, all of that. But I was like, which were like, so it seems a little, I mean, I guess could be world war two. I guess yeah. seems a little young, but yeah, during Korea, that doesn't seem to make sense. Anyway. Um, uh, Jim goes and gets an Oreo out of his cookie jar and pours himself a glass of milk while he uh, tells uh, Kane to get his feet off his desk and don't make himself <laughs> so much at home. 
Kane says that he he was there and he saw the whole thing outside the gallery and he lost right. interest after the bird was smashed. <laughs> um, he refers to Evelyn as a small curse on the art world because she never has enough money to actually buy anything, so she just ends up bidding everyone else up. Like this, these are all just like fun little details establishing this character in this world that right. I, I think are are good. Um, the phone rings and it's an overseas call for for Kane and Jim does not accept it. How many of those have you charged me? Um, but he's been making some calls. There is another cormorant coming to L.A. And he does want Jim to act again in his stead to pick it up. Jim's like, I don't want to be involved with this. Clearly something's going on. I'm not interested. And so this is where Kane uh, puts on the pressure. He took a look around, gave a call to Jim's bonding company. So that yeah. was set up for us with the mention of the bond uh, claim. Talk to them. Uh, they're on the verge of canceling his account because of all the large claims he has coming in. Uh, he's just barely afloat. Because of this, I can hit them so hard that they'll drop you from the, you know, from your bond. You won't have any, you know, insurance, yeah. right? And that puts him out of work as a legitimate PI. Jim says that uh, we're not we're not getting along too well, are we? <laughs> <laughs> so how much of this is BS? <laughs> this is i mean i don't mean this isn't necessary for my enjoyment of the episode or anything like that i just like thinking about the fact that he is running a like did jim actually receive a call from overseas or is this just someone in kane's back pocket who calls as the operator asking if he'll accept you know like oh sure uh because like he mocked up that entire hotel room and we're not even talking about it. Right. <laughs> uh, like, did he call his bondman? Maybe not. Like, mm-hmm. um, it, I, certainly he could have as well as part right. of the whole thing. But like, it just, it's interesting. Cause he, he's blending legitimate stuff and con stuff. Right? Yes. Cause like, yeah, he did legitimately hire Jim to do something. And in, in Jim's care, that thing did get broken and it was worth some amount of money. Right. So he could legitimately call, you know, call the bond company and be make a complaint or something like that, right? Yeah. I guess at this point, I mean, I, it's more of a rhetorical question sure, than anything sure. else. It's just like this is it's interesting to think about uh just how out on a limb this character is, right? Yeah. Like he's definitely somewhere out there, but I think we learned at the end of the episode that he's pretty desperate actually. Yeah. And so this whole time he's acting very confident, Mm -hmm. but he's actually very desperate. So that kind of explains some of this weirdness. Again, I'm not, I'm also not complaining about this. Like this is good stuff. No, this is fun to think about. But there is a little bit of feeling like we're thinking about this more than the episode is. Yeah. Again. Yeah. (laughs) Apologies. Because it's kind of like, why did he have to mock up that whole room in the first place? He doesn't need to convince He's just hiring Jim for, yeah. He doesn't need to fake being an art dealer. Like, all these other people know him. Yeah. Why was that necessary? Hold on. I'm coming around to a different thing, then. Mm -hmm. Uh, To him being more legit, and the whole fake room business was him paying the manager to tell whoever came by that nobody was ever in the room. Uh, because he's trying to avoid any connection to what's going on with the bird. That's true. But the room's still stripped. Right. So he's, he's, he's saying, Oh, once he moved out, 
Yeah. And he's like, hey, yeah, if anyone comes asking for me, no one rented this room. Because he knows who okay. uh, Stoneman is. Yeah. Uh, he knows both of them. Yes. He knows who this woman is. So when he sees her, then there's a reason for him to not have her find him. Yeah. So that makes sense. It's not that it was set up to fool Jim. It's that there's a cover story that he was never there. And that's the con. Yeah. And that actually makes more sense with the rest of this, with the rest of this episode. Well, I'm glad we just sat down and figured that out. I I hope our listeners are. You're welcome. At the end of this scene, he pays Jim the second hundred dollars that he owes him. And then he, Offers him $500 to do the second job because he knows that it's more dangerous or, you mm-hmm. know, more complicated or whatever. But it's at 2 p.m., so he needs to hurry. So we go to our good friend Dennis Becker getting hustled by Jim. <laughs> As he had him oh. run Thomas Kane. Um, I mean, he needs to get the info, you know, he needs it now because he needs to be at that thing by 2. Um, and Dennis does not appreciate being used like this all the time. And we have a great Jim Dennis back and forth uh, about how he interacts with the police department. Um, as long as you get what you want, what do I get? Last Christmas, it was a case of scotch. <laughs> yes. Uh, I wrote that one down too. And that Jim coming around all the time embarrasses Dennis with his bosses. Uh, but he does finally give in and whisper. He won't give him the printout, but he whispers <laughs> to him the information no warrants, but Scotland Yard and Interpol have a question out on him. They want to ask yeah. him about the disappearance of this Lloyd's of London insurance company, insurance agent, Barrows. Jim says thank you and gets a loud, get out of here, Rockford, and don't come back <laughs> in return. Happy, I need a quick break. I'm going to grab a taco. You tell our wonderful listeners all the places that they can find you and your work on the information superhighway. I'll be right back. One way to find me is to go to twitter.com and search for at Epidiah, E-P-I-D-I-A-H. I'm usually responsive there. Otherwise, you can go to worldswithoutmaster.com where you can find my sword and sorcery fiction and role-playing games. And if you like role-playing games, maybe you want to check out digathousandholes.com where uh, I publish all my other role-playing games. Oh no, I dropped my calculator. Nathan, while I go pick up a spare, why don't you tell the good folks uh, where they can find you on the internet? In addition to this podcast, I also design and publish role-playing games, including the worldwide wrestling, pro wrestling role-playing game, among many others. You can find links to all of my games and other projects at ndpdesign.com. And of course, you can find me on twitter.com at ndpaoletta. Looks like you're back. You you ready to continue the arithmetic analysis for this episode there, Epi? I'm back. I have my DM42 with me, and I'm ready to get in, dig down into Rockford's books again. Mm. All right. Well, I'm done with this delicious avocado taco. Well, let's get back to the show then. Uh, we're constantly mentioning this, but we, you mentioned earlier how the scene with um, Kane about the sculpture is reused uh, when... Um, Jim is talking to Evelyn. This is another scene that as I'm watching it, there's some great stuff going on establishing Jim and Dennis's relationship and the tension it puts on Dennis mm-hmm. uh, at the department and also explains how Jim is able to get some information 
that he wouldn't otherwise be able to get. There's a lot of good stuff going on here, but also this scene sets up uh, a good payoff later on. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I just love that craft in this show. Mm-hmm. Just that like, you could have just had this scene. You could have just had Dennis say, Hey, how are you doing, Jim? Let's go fishing next weekend or whatever. And here's the information. You could have just had them arguing for no good reason. Uh, but instead it all. Yeah. There's a payoff. Yeah. There's a payoff. There's a reason they're arguing. It also establishes for us what's going on, especially if we just tuned into Rockford. It's the second season. Yeah. I heard about this Rockford Files show. I wanted to see what it was about. I turned on this one. I don't know who this Dennis character is, but now I do. Now I totally understand Dennis and Rockford and their uh, their entire uh, dynamic. Anyways. It's good stuff. Just a pitch for that scene. Enjoy. So here's a question for you. Yeah. I assume that the references to Lloyds of London are something that TV audiences would reasonably know what that means at the time, right? Yeah, I would think so. Um, right. I wonder if that is still a reference people recognize. I know it because in the 90s, uh, during the, uh, the the Monday Night Wars between uh, the WWF and WCW, uh. <laughs> one of the big attractions for wrestlers to go over to WCW was that they were facilitating or offering Lloyds of London insurance policies for the wrestlers. And uh. so... If a wrestler got hurt, they'd have this luxury insurance package that would keep paying them even if they couldn't wrestle. And that was actually a big thing that ended up that like that ended up creating a big financial drain on the company and some stuff like there's some politics around that. But in terms of Lloyd's of London insurance policies, my reference point for those are from 90s wrestling. So I was trying to figure out what my reference is. My my guess is that... uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach. Hmm. Just looked this up to find out when this aired. And this aired, started airing in 1984. So this is after the Rockford Files. This is a show where you just see how the rich people live, right? Hmm. Like it's, it's, it's trash. It's, it's trash. <laughs> um, but we watch it. We watch it a lot. And because uh, that's what television was back then. <laughs> in complete contrast to the thesis of this podcast but anyways um i I just remember lloyd's of london being mentioned almost every episode Mm -hmm. Uh, like to show off how important something is if you can yeah if you can afford lloyd's of london insurance that means that a you're very rich and b that whatever you're insuring is very valuable yes exactly so it's it's a name drop um yeah a status symbol. But yeah, I don't know if that actually... I mean, from context here, it's like, it's an insurance company in London. Like, that's all you need for the plot. I just wonder if that's like, also kind of like a a pop culture, like, oh, like, that's very fancy. It's not Acme Insurance Agency, right? Like, they're very specific. Or if it's just because it has London in the name, so you know it's from (laughs) England, right? Could be. Yes. Uh, We cut to... The Winslow Gallery sign and voiceover of Sold to the man in the brown coat. And this time, Kane is waiting for Rockford outside, right in the parking lot, and pays him the $500 cash as Jim hands over the crate with the cormorant inside. Jim has pocketed $700 so far this episode. He's won. (laughs) Just walk away. That's like... 
half a week's worth of work for Jim. Done. <laughs> but there's still a mystery. Yes. And, you know, he's got to figure that out. Yeah, Jim uh, takes his leave and then looks thoughtful in the car, backs up, uh, gets out, makes a phone call from the phone booth in front of the Winslow Gallery. And he's calling Ted. Uh, the spectral analysis came back. And guess what? That first <laughs> bird, the broken one, that was an original Lambrini. <laughs> he doesn't know how it happened, but uh, that's uh, that's what the spectral analysis says. So, he's, so he's, he has good news and bad news. The bad news is that the broken bird was an original, but now it's broken, right? So mm-hmm. that's bad. The good news is that if Jim can convince Kane to lend the other two to Ted to display for the museum uh, for a couple weeks or whatever, he can get a grand in it for Jim. So he wants him to try and make that happen, uh, which I appreciate. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like giving another little, like, hey, Jim, stay interested in this. Yeah. This is a buddy that he trusts, even though now he doesn't look at all like Carl Sagan. <laughs> <laughs> but Jim doesn't know that. He's talking to him on the phone. As Jim gets back in the Firebird, he sees Kane across the parking lot, clearly throwing the cormorant on the ground, shattering it. And then throwing the pieces in a trash can and driving away. So uh, Jim goes over and collects the pieces for himself. This is a, this is a great scene, just for the WTF of it, right? Like, just yeah. you kind of know that that's what he was going to do, anyways. But like, just to have Jim witness this from a distance <laughs> and just be like, okay, <laughs> like what? What is happening? He goes back to his trailer, but as he's pulling up, we see that there's two cops uh, in uniform knocking on his door and peering in his windows. So (laughs) it's not a J-turn, but he does make a quick reverse to uh, get out of the parking lot before they can see him. All right, so we have two two birds. Everyone's been saying that they're the duplicates, but turns out that definitely one and probably both are actually originals. Mm -hmm. The guy who wants them... Is clearly looking for something inside of it, not wanting it itself, even though it itself is a priceless art piece. And now the cops are knocking on Jim's door. That's where we're at, right? Yes. Uh, Jim calls Becker from a phone booth. Jim, where are you, buddy? Oh, I'm uh, in a phone booth. Yeah, whereabouts? It's uh, under a tree. <laughs> this beginning is so great because Becker's sweet voice Stands the hair up on the back of my head. Oh no, it's a trap. Jim knows that Dennis... Jim knows that Dennis knows that Jim knows Dennis wants him to... You know, is trying to get him to come in, right? It's one of those, like, it's all all the way down. Um, But they both have to still play out their respective parts, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jim's trying to stay away from the department. He knows that it hurts Dennis's reputation when he comes around there. There's the payoff from the earlier scene. Um, he's like, tell me what this is about. Maybe I'll I'll come in. Uh, it says that they found that insurance agent Barrows. He's dead. Um, so whatever happened after the goon talked to him, he has uh, passed on. Um, and so Lloyds of London wants to question Kane because uh, they think he might have been involved with a jewel heist. And they're sending out an agent to question him. Uh, Jim's like, all right, well. I'll come in and he hangs up. Uh, we zoom out and Dennis was on the phone and there was another officer like listening on an earpiece. Oh, okay, Dennis, I'm on my way.
Put out a warrant on Rockford. He said he was coming in. He's not coming in. How do you know? Because I know, that's all. <laughs> oh, sweet summer child. <laughs> Jim Rockford's not coming in. <laughs> uh, we cut to Jim and Evelyn uh, having dinner, apparently. Yeah. Another interesting kind of chemistry thing. She seems to be flirting with him as if he's flirting with her, but he's not right. actually. Yes. <laughs> is she trying to get him to put down his guard? Or is she acting like she thinks he expects her to be acting? Could be either. I wrote down the ending to this, and I wish I had written down the whole exchange, because he has this line in it where it's a double entendre, and she says something like, oh, you're not going to you know, get that unless I want you to get that or something like that. And he's like, that's sweet and terribly current, but not what I had in mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he makes it clear. He's like, no, I'm not actually flirting with you. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. It, again, it's not it's not typical. Yeah. Um, he brings it after that. He brings it back around to the the uh, the replicas. Mm -hmm. He thinks he can get a hold of the third one. Um, and she says, what about the second one? <laughs> <laughs> and so it breaks the news that the second one uh, went the way of the first. She again kind of uh, uh, takes him to task for letting these works of art be destroyed. Um, and she gets pretty upset. He calls her out on that. She's like, well, I'm just going to take, uh, take more control over myself or something like that. Yeah. Can't tell if she's acting to be upset or <laughs> if she's actually upset, but it's not for the reason Jim thinks. Um, it's interesting stuff. It's interesting watching the second time with yeah. her to see her kind of delivery of all this stuff. Cause I feel like there's little tells that kind of are adding up to like, okay, someone here is lying to Jim about something, but it's right, still unclear right. who and why. Well, she says she's willing to pay any price to get the third one back for the national gallery. He just better not uh, break this one. And he says that he will wear a catcher's mitt this time. Uh, Jim goes from that dinner where he's wearing one of his lovely pale yellow shirts to uh, being in a car wearing a bright pink shirt. Great transition. Um, I like how each of these meetings with Kane is less and less official. Like the first yes. one was in like the big built out uh, yeah. uh, office. <laughs> Second one was in Jim's trailer. And this time they're just pulling up next to each other in the street in their independent cars. <laughs> Kane's like, all right, here's where the third one's being auctioned. I want you to go get it. This time there's a condition. Uh, he has his friend Ted who wants to display it for a week or so. He'll mm -hmm. make it worth their while. And there's a there's a grand in it for me, right? Right. Uh, Kane doesn't like that he's been talking to someone else about this operation. But then Jim puts the pressure on saying like, well, I was talking to my friend Dennis Becker down at the police headquarters. He's looking for you. And also there's this Lloyd's London agent coming out who wants to talk to you. Uh, and we have the line from the preview montage of, uh, this is blackmail. No, it's business. Yes. So Kane gives in and says, very well. This time at the Murchison Gallery, the voiceover says, sold to the gentleman in the fourth row. <laughs> and then we, uh, we, we, we get the big parlor re revelation, get, every, get all the suspects together. Right, yeah, yeah. Except it's at uh, Ted's uh, gallery, I guess. Or Ted. Ted wants to run a test on the third bird uh, and make sure it's an original, like the other two. Uh, Kane seems legit surprised that they're originals, right? Yeah. He says it's impossible. They're replicas. He's like, mm -hmm. nope, the machine doesn't lie. Um, 
So Ted, Kane, and Jim are all there. There's a, a little bit about, because Kane destroyed one, right? Like, for what whatever he is, he does appreciate art, and that's there's got to be something going on internally there right. in that moment. Then Evelyn appears with the two goons. Yeah. They pull guns. Uh, Jim says, hey, you're early. Cain <laughs> um, says, oh, hello, Margaret. And Ted says, I know Evelyn Stoneman, and this isn't Evelyn Stoneman. Uh, she's been lying the whole time. Yes. And Jim, obviously, he's like, I was afraid you were going to say that. She takes the third bird from him. Jim says not to break it. Don't break the bird. It happens to be one of the original Lambrinis. It is not a copy. Don't take all these art jazz too seriously, dear. It ruins your sense of humor and it clogs the sinuses. <laughs> Margaret and the goons leave. Uh, Kane apparently has a gun. He goes for it. Jim pulls it away from him. Uh, gives it to Ted. Has Ted keep an eye on Kane. And it's like, I'll call the cops. And then he throws an ashtray through the window to set off the burglar alarm. Which is I love that move. <laughs> It's like, sorry, it's the fastest thing. Yeah, he's like, I know, I know, but it's quicker. Like, (laughs) (laughs) we don't have time for this. Which is kind of funny because it turns out they do have time for it. But anyway. Yes. (laughs) But it's, it's, it's such a Rockford solution, right? Like, it's it's, a very gym move. I had an exit strategy for this. Um, They have a a lead on him. Uh, He follows. I expected a car chase, but no, we just cut right to the airport. Yeah, this is, <laughs> my notes were, a car chase. Okay, let me just read verbatim what my notes were. <laughs> a car chase and nothing in the opening montage. Oh. <laughs> I was like, how can you have a car chase and not put part of it in the opening montage? I see you don't have a car chase. There, uh, so at the airport, Jim gets on the, the old payphone, calls Dennis, uh, tells him to get, get their guys out there. They're on concourse B. I feel like over time, we've seen a lot of good, elaborate Jim at the airport cons. Yeah. (laughs) And this is one of them. He goes inside. He uses the courtesy phone to page Edward Barrows, which is the name of the agent that died, to come to like international baggage claim or something like that. And then he heads up to the cocktail lounge uh, where we see... Uh, Margaret and the two goons enjoying a cocktail before their flight back to London. As you do. As you do. They see him come in, talk to the woman at the bar or whatever, and then the page comes over the speakers, Mm -hmm. and he goes over to the courtesy phone to answer the page. Uh, To make sure we're tracking this, they have some dialogue where the goon says, (laughs) answering a page for a dead man? Yeah. And then Margaret says, well, it wasn't in any of the three birds luggage <laughs> so keeping us on track with what's going on and also it, clearly telling us that the third bird has been destroyed right right uh so jim answered that page so now he in the role of edward barrows is going to the baggage claim uh mm-hmm. he uses mirrors in a cigarette machine on his way to make <laughs> to make sure that they are following him yes because he doesn't like make eye contact or quote, notice them in the cocktail lounge. But he was making sure that they saw him. That's the whole con. So he goes to, uh, you know, down some stairs, picks up Barrow's luggage, thanks the guy for, you know, keeping it for so long or whatever. So he has the big-ass briefcase that got checked. I just just love how seamlessly this is like, 
oh yeah, this was set up in that first scene. The fact that he had to check it and couldn't take it, it still got checked onto the plane even though he never left London. Yes. <laughs> it seems really obvious just to state it like that. Like, yes, that is the plot. But That is the plot. Yeah, it was a great <laughs> little like, oh, it all comes together, right? That's why that whole scene happened, was to give us this scene. Uh, it's great. Uh, they follow him as he leaves the airport with this bag. Uh, we see Becker arrive and then follow all of them back out of the airport. Jim goes to the Firebird and again uses a rearview mirror of the van next to him to make sure they're still behind him. And then our uh, our main goon runs up to him with a gun. I'll take the bag. And Jim's like, okay, okay. And then in a classic Jim Rockford maneuver, whaps him in the side of the head with a giant heavy bag uh, when he's not expecting it. Uh, Goon Prime starts taking some pot shots at him, but then the cops arrive. We have this moment where he very, where Goon Prime doesn't drop his gun when they say drop the gun and he gets shot. Yeah. <laughs> Straight, which again feels a little rare for the Rockford Files, um, where we just see that on camera. Mm hmm. So uh, justice is served. Our bad guys are brought low. Something I was going to say about that scene, I can't remember. Was it the airbrushed van parked next to well, the Well, that was glorious. <laughs> when they took a shot at Rockford, I, I felt for that van. Mm -hmm. I was like, don't hit the van. <laughs> Whatever you do. Uh, no, I guess there was also a foot chase, but it wasn't much of one. Yeah, uh, uh, Margaret runs away and is yeah caught by a couple cops yeah um once everyone is apprehended jim opens the bag uh pulls out yet another uh italian bird <laughs> smashes it on the ground and it's full of diamonds yes uh and then he pulls out the other two that were also in the bag the mystery is solved question mark thankfully we have a final scene to explain to us what happened <laughs> this is this <laughs> I didn't mind this final scene because obviously Jim's in it and Dennis is in it for most of it. it and, it, you know, it does the things that you want done. But uh, it was a little superfluous to me. I mean, the point of the scene is to get us to to uh, Jim's final uh, tally for his for his labor. Yeah. But the first half is kind of like, well, while we have you here, let's go ahead and uh, some episodes of the Rockford Files kind of trust the audience a little more just to, like, get what's going on right. without so much exposition. And this one, especially in these last two scenes, is like, you know what, in case you haven't been following, yeah, here's what happened. We, we, we gave you a lot of twists and turns, so let's just, you know... Wait, actually, you know what, I take that back. It's not even the twists and turns. It's that uh, the motivating, motivating crime is never examined right. in the episode. And that it's this jewel heist. Like, at no point does Rockford think he's involved in a jewel heist. He doesn't know what he's involved in. Right. Or I shouldn't say at no point. He, he figures something out. Once Jim says that the agent was involved with a jewel heist or something. Yeah, yeah. But he's still just trying to kind of cover his own cover his own ass and yeah. figure out what's, what the deal is. So, uh... Jim and Dennis are at the bar with this Lloyd's of London insurance agent. Turns out Evelyn was actually uh, Margaret, Margaret Donegan, who was an executive secretary at whatever the, the, the heist was from some estate. Ah. So she was an executive secretary at the, they, they keep saying the name and I didn't write it down. So Kane worked with her 
on the scheme to move the diamonds out of Europe because once they were stolen, they were too hot to move in Europe. But then he wanted to cut her out of the deal and Barrows was supposed to make the switch. So here's the thing. It's like, I was kind of like, I don't know if I need this explanation. And then the explanation was like, yeah. wait, this is a little complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe it, I appreciate this explanation. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the plan was we put the diamonds in these uh, statues. The statues are insured by Lloyds of London. Insured packages usually aren't inspected by customs. Mm-hmm. Um, they come to the auction house. I buy them. We have now cleared the diamonds to sell in the U.S. somewhere. But then Barrows, I guess, was working with Kane to make the switch so that the insured art objects were the empty ones and he had the ones full of diamonds. Right. Because Customs doesn't look through the things that are coming to the auction houses because they're insured and have already been kind of like approved or whatever. So Barrows was part of this plan. But before he could make the switch to put the full ones in for the empty ones... Uh, <laughs> Margaret's goons caught up with him. There's there's a little bit of question to me of like, at what point did this double cross happen? I guess it doesn't matter too much, except for the right. fact that he goes through it and it still leaves me with some questions. But, okay, Kane and Margaret are like, yes, let's move these diamonds out of the country. Then Kane was like, I'm going to cut Margaret out of the deal. Right. He took the diamonds in order to move them out and then was like, I'm not going to tell you how I'm doing it or something like that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So Barrows was supposed to make the switch. The goons caught up to him before he could make the actual switch. So he stuffed him in his bag, but then they found him again. But Kane didn't know that. So everyone assumed he had made the switch. So that's why he was trying to get the things. They didn't know that they'd never been switched because Barrows was the only one who knew that they actually had the originals because that estate also had the original sculptures. Right. (laughs) That nobody knew about that. So that was like the big, the big spoiler to the whole plan was it turns out there are originals as well as the fakes or something like that. It doesn't matter too much. That's what he says. <laughs> and Dennis even says, okay, sure. I have a headache. I'll, I'll talk to you tomorrow when we start extradition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dennis is out. Maybe they're like, whatever. We don't need to explain all this. He says some words. We're good. We move on. Yeah. Um, Dennis asks Jim if he's going to be picking up the tab and Jim says, Sure. Dennis leaves because Jim has some final things to talk about with this agent. Not to be crass, but about my 5% recovery fee on a million dollars worth of diamonds. That works out to Mm $50,000. But, says the agent, each cormorant was insured for $15,000. And the company feels that since Jim was hired to protect them and they were all destroyed, he should bear the loss. Which leaves Jim yes. with a nice, clear $5,000. But, of course... I've been doing some preliminary figuring. Now, from the 5000 there's, of course, uh, English inheritance taxes and English income taxes. Oh, yes, we shall have to, of course, inform your IRS. <laughs> and oh, there's the rate of exchange to consider. Oh, yes. And yes. then there's... One minute. Yeah. Do you think there's going to be enough left for me to pick up this tab? Well, I really don't know, Mr. Rockford. That rather depends. Do you intend to keep on drinking? (laughs) And we freeze frame on Jim's sad, wry smile. Yes. Okay, so I obviously 
don't agree that it's Jim's fault that like there are actual criminals that have done damage to this property. Right. Jim did none of it. Uh, I'm not going to argue in TV court about this, (laughs) but you know, Jim is being robbed here. (laughs) Okay. It's a scene about that joke, but it's also a scene about how all of these people involved in this were criminals but they were also all high society. Right. You know, yeah. and the, it's just the high society being like, Jim, you'll never be a part of this. And ha- having a guy in it with a posh British accent explaining to him how he's not going to see any of this money. Yeah. Uh, and it's not like he's going to, not like he had aspirations for it to begin with. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, the, so that's fine. Uh, but also Jim should be pretty happy. Cause like I said, he made $700. Mm-hmm. It's not the best pay, but he got, all the money? He got the 200 for the first job. He got the 500 for the second job. Oh, yeah. No. So and, then he gave, he... and then he had the bird with Kane. You'd assume that Kane paid him for the third one since he paid him for the other two. Yeah. I don't think they specified what that was going to be, but he actually comes out more ahead yeah. than he does in many episodes. So, yeah, he does He does all right with this one. Just not as all right as... He thought he was going to do Well, there's to do, that or... promise of the big score, right? Like, yeah, Jim could do exactly. a lot with 50K, and then it's going to be, like, $100 after yeah. everything is is settled, right? Poor Jim. Poor Jim. But other than the guy who gets thrown, who jumps off a roof by accident, and then the guy who gets shot by the cops, everyone else <laughs> seems to come out okay. Yeah. Yeah, there's some extradition happening. Like, you know, justice is being served in the background. Yeah. Uh, thanks to the ever-vigilant James Rockford. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was a fun episode. Yeah. Uh, like, going back over it, uh, we definitely get a little tangled up in the in the the web it wove. <laughs> yeah, but kind of in a fun way. Not in yeah. a, this doesn't yeah. hang together. More in a, I see why all this stuff is in here in the way that it is. Because it's mainly for us as the audience, right? Yeah. It's more audience-directed than, like, internally consistent in that way. But it's also not, like, none of this makes sense. It's it's more of the, okay, once we, once we decide to really delve into it, we can figure out how it makes sense. There's a little headcanon. There's a little bit of assumption we have to make. But you know, the beats work. I think, it, and I'll never remember this, but I think my homework for my third viewing, or (laughs) third, my next viewing of this uh, is to see what Maggie is actually doing throughout it. Yeah. There's either some really subtle things going on, or they were like, she's actually Evelyn Stoneman until this moment when she shows up at the Goons, right? And I'm just curious. I like, I'll, 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 if I watch it again, I'm sorry, I probably will, but if I remember right. when I watch it again, uh, I, I want to watch that more closely. I think there's some there's some stuff that it's like, is this the, quote, honest reaction that she is having to this event? Or right. is she projecting the reaction that she thinks Jim would expect her to have? Yeah. And it's a little complicated because she does think that they're fakes. So when yes. it turns out that they're real, but then she doesn't care. She doesn't care that they're real. She cares about the diamonds. But Kane thinks they're fakes, so doesn't care that they get broken until he learns that it is real. And then he's like, "Oh wait a second. Um, so that's kind of good. Uh, this episode has a has has kind of a, a a good arrangement of the character motivations feeling 
like they're internally consistent to those characters. Yeah. Does that make sense? They, like, yeah. And part of that is bound up in like Kane doesn't come off as a heavy. He's not trying to hurt anyone. He's motivated by what he thinks is happening. Mm-hmm. It just turns out that what he thinks is happening is wrong. <laughs> um, I think that's something you know that we've always liked about the show is how it does a good job making those motivations feel internally consistent to the characters as they're presented. Yeah, it's it's that, and also the fact that they don't always just come out of the left field either. Like some of them, they're internally consistent, but also the things that they do can provide red herrings without uh, betraying that internal consistency, I think is what I'm trying to say, right? Yes. From the audience perspective, stuff happens and we're like, where's that going? And then it turns out to, we we see why that thing happened. Right. We see why he broke that, uh, broke the second bird. Yeah, exactly. Even though at the time it's like, why is he breaking the second bird? (laughs) (laughs) What is he up to? Yeah, why did he buy it just to break it? That kind of thing. Yeah, no, it's good. It's uh, uh, if there's one that I'm going to be like, wait a second about it's. I like him more in this vein where this is giving me a lot of a lot to just kind of chew on and be like, you know, feel like I'm being smart by trying to explain things versus this episode is leaving me adrift. Right. Uh, so this yeah. goes on the positive side of that where I get to feel feel like I'm doing some like smart connecting of of dots. Uh, to, to bridge the stuff that on the second viewing is a little like, wait a second. <laughs> but even just on just casually, just the casual watch, it's super fun. It's funny. Uh, Jim gets to make some money, which is nice. Uh, yeah. We get to see, have good art world jokes. We got a, a nice view at one of Jim's friends that we'll never see again. Right. And and some good Jim, Jim Dennis moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The gambit <laughs> where Dennis is... Dennis knows... <laughs> Dennis knows that 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 was a good moment. Yeah. Just the the look on his face, like ah, we're gonna have to bring my friend in. All right. Well, uh, it always feels good when Jim gets to get his two hundred dollars a day. Yeah. So uh, I'd say that we've perhaps made our own, or at least gotten our replica uh, formats <laughs> in line. I wouldn't have an original one myself, but perhaps the uh, a Lambrini duplicate may show up on one of my shelves. We'll see. With like a some modeler's glue (laughs) put it back together (laughs) it'll be full of dog treats though yeah (laughs) the most valuable resource in my house (laughs) i agree well uh with that then we will sign off for now Mm -hmm. but fear not for we will be back next time to talk about another episode of the rockford files (laughs) i don't know how to do a violin noise (laughs) that was good that was well done.